But as Megan was talking about earlier this morning, we're at the end of a decade and uh, end of a year. And since I have the opportunity to preach on this Sunday most years, I often find myself in the same kind of thought patterns from year to year, thinking about uh, the last year, thinking about what's gone on in my life, thinking about what's gone on in the church. And so I kind of tend to to preach about similar topics each year, and this year is no exception. This year, though... um, as, as I've ended the year, I've had kind of two big thoughts, two big reflections over the last couple of weeks about 2019. One of them personal and one of them about the state of the church. I'm going to start with the personal one. For me, back at the beginning of 2019, um, normally I, I like to set resolutions, but they never really pan out very well. Um, you, like Megan was joking, February 1st rolls around. It usually actually, if I'm honest, it's January 2nd. January 2nd rolls around and I'm already have abandoned any resolution I had, any notion of that. But for whatever reason, I, I, they never go well. And but for whatever reason, in 2019, I set my sights really high. I'm like, this year, I'll, I got it. So I, in 2019, I decided I'm going to run a half marathon. And considering that there's like millions of people who run half marathons in the United States every year, that's not that crazy of a goal, unless you know me. The, <laughs> I hate running. I have always hated running. The furthest before 2019 that I had run, I think, I can't remember, I can't confirm this fact, I think was a mile and a half. So half marathon is 13.1 miles. It's a little bit further than a mile and a half. And when I ran that mile and a half, I remember it, I think, because I hated every single step of a mile and a half. And it probably took me way too long. But for whatever reason, in 2019, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. Half marathon. Here I come. I skipped the 5Ks and the 10Ks, and I just half marathon. Here we go. And I don't know what <laughs> possessed me to do that. I mean, I have some ideas. But I did. And the craziest thing about it is that I actually did it, um, and, uh, which never, never works. And I was reflecting on it this week, and I did the math, and I actually was able to run 1,000 miles this year, which is a lot of miles on the trails of Chaska. So if you've seen me around, that's why. It takes a long time to run that far. Um, I was able to run 1,000 miles this year, and I, don't, I, I was reflecting on why. Because, as I said, I am terrible at resolutions, I am ter- and I hated running. I mean, if you think about it, running hurts. It's hard. I like to breathe, and it's hard to breathe when you're running. We live in a terrible place to run seven or eight months out of the year. Um, like, there was a lot of reasons for me not to run. And as I was reflecting on 2019, I realized that the reason I stuck with running was because I ignored all the reasons to stop, because there are so many reasons to stop. And I focused on the reasons to keep going. Um, and I'm going to actually give you some of my uh, reasons that I kept running throughout, throughout the sermon and I hope you don't get too sick of running. Brittany has had to put up with it for a year, me telling her story after story of running, so I'm hoping you guys can put up with it for the next 45 minutes. Um, if not, you can just pretend I'm not talking about running and something else that you enjoy, like watching movies. I don't know. Um, but I realized that there were some reasons that kept me going, and I'm going to share some of those throughout the sermon because there are so many reasons to stop. Um, and this ties into my other observation I had for 2019, the other thing that I've been reflecting on um, and it's, it's common for me as a youth pastor to kind of reflect on this, but I've been reflecting on the state of the church, specifically the state of the church as it relates to the young adults. Um, if anything has been true for the last decade, you probably have seen at least one or a hundred articles about why young people are leaving the church. Does that sound familiar? 
There is so much written these days about why young people are leaving the church. And for this morning, just for the sake of definition, I'm going to be defining young people as like the 18 to 29-year-old demographic. That's, there's some t- statistics that I'm going to share in a little bit, and that is what that demographic is, the 18 to 29-year-olds, emerging adults, young adults, whatever you want to call them, that demographic. And over the last decade, lots and lots of research has been done on why are these people leaving the church? And there's been lots of thoughts about why young people are leaving the church. Some of them true. Some of them are just trying to figure out what's going on and trying to to stop it from happening. But I think we all can agree that we've seen this happening. And I think the trend is is true, that there are, there's a large number of young people leaving the church. And this year, um, I've been reflecting on that specifically. And I actually had the opportunity to read a book. Um, I got to get the title right because it's kind of a long title. Um, the book is uh, from David Kinneman and Mark Matlock. They're Barna Research, um, and they do research, and I, I love their statistics. But they wrote a book called Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. And as they were doing their research, they actually discovered some interesting statistics about these 18 to 29-year-olds. And I want to share some of these statistics with you. Um, they, they polled about 1,500 18 to 29-year-olds who were raised in the church. So this isn't just any, any 1,500, 18 to 29-year-olds. These are people who were raised in the church. And they were able to break it down into four categories. They were able to identify four consistencies among this, this group of people. Um, and so they categorized them into four groups based on some of the questions and statements that they identified. The first group they identified was that of the first statistic, is that of prodigals. So 22% of, of the... 18 to 29-year-olds they surveyed fell into this category of prodigal. And what a prodigal means is that they were raised Christian, but currently they would not consider themselves a Christian. They haven't been in church for a long time. Um, So they are, some people would call that de-churched. So they used to go to church, and then now they no longer do. They would say that they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Um, They are prodigals. They have gone astray. The next group that I want to talk about is the nomads. This is another 30%. 30% are... Um, people that would call themselves Christian but are not connected with a church. They probably haven't attended church in the last six months, uh, maybe once, maybe Christmas, Easter, one of those types of of situations. But they are not connected with the church. They say they're Christian, but that might be in like the, the idea of like, I'm spiritual but not religious, or I'm a Christian but don't really believe. So they're, they're nomads. They're wandering. They're, they're unsure. So that's Right now, we already have over half of, of young adults who were raised in the church would be, what would be what I would consider not active in their faith. The third category I want to talk about is habitual churchgoers. This is the largest category. 38% of 18 to 29-year-olds who were raised in the church are habitual churchgoers. And now, these people call themselves Christians, and they attend church regularly, at least once a month. But they don't have what we would consider a deep faith. Maybe it's because of something they believe. Maybe they don't really want to get too connected with the church. Maybe these are the people that attend, sit somewhere near the back and sneak out after the service once a month. It's hard to define exactly who these people are, but they are people who, who didn't quite line up with, what, with some, of the, some of the marks of what a deep faith would look like. And so that's 38%. This is, this is someone who attends church, but their faith is not all there. 
Then the last group, this is the group that I want to actually focus on this morning, is what they called resilient disciples. This made up 10% of those surveyed. And now, they defined resilient disciples by, they kind of had certain criteria that they had for these people. The first one was that they attend church. That's kind of a shocker. But not only do they attend church, but they engage on a regular basis. At least once a month, they're at church, and they're probably connected with church outside of a Sunday, whether that's a life group, another program, a Bible study. Another thing is that they have a very high view of Scripture and believe that Scripture is informative and um, authoritative for their life. That's what a resilient disciple would believe in. They also believe and affirm that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected, and through faith in Christ, we can have salvation. That's kind of a big category. But they believe that Jesus is the foundation of our salvation. And finally, they believe that our mission as the church is to go out and make a difference in the world, to go out and to lead people to Christ. So that's what they defined as resilient disciples. And so I was reading this book as I was reflecting on the state of the church. And it is very easy to focus on the 90% at the top, right? The 90% of people that, for whatever reason, the faith that they grew up in, it, they is not all there anymore. Either they've walked away, they just don't see it as important anymore, or it's just a habit. It's easy to focus on that. That's, if, if, I, if we were to survey all the articles, all the books, all of the, the material that has been put out around the state of the church, most of it would focus on those 90%. What has caused them to leave? What has caused their faith to fall flat? But as I was thinking about this, and I, ironically, I was listening to this book while I was running. The connection kind of clicked for me. Um, it's easy to focus on the reasons, the negative reasons. So for me, when I was running, the, the reasons to stop. My knees hurt, my ankles hurt, my hips hurt. I, like, it's easy to focus on all the reasons to stop. It's easy to focus on all of the reasons that people are leaving the church. But I've discovered something, and, and this is my admittedly limited year of experience in running. But you could say your feet hurt while you're running. You can buy yourself some nice soft shoes with some nice soft insoles. But then in like two weeks, your shins start hurting. <laughs> then you can get yourself some things to help your shins feel better. You can ice, take a break. Then your knees start to hurt. It just something that always hurts when you're running. And there's always something. There's always a reason to stop. But as I was thinking about that, think about us in the way of the church. We could focus on something that's going wrong. We say, oh, well, our services are too long. We could make them shorter. Or the sermon's too long. Or, uh, I don't know, the, the, the worship centers were facing the wrong direction. I don't know. You could focus on a lot of reasons that, that people are leaving the church. I don't think that's one of the reasons people leave the church. But you never know. And you could focus on reason after reason. But there will always be another reason. It's, it's kind of overwhelming to focus on all of the negative that's going on. And so I was thinking about, instead of focusing on the 90%, what if we focused on the 10%? Those people that were raised in the church and now have what we would call a resilient, deep faith. What is it in their lives that makes them different from the other 90%? And that's what, that's what we're going to walk through this morning. And, and this is what Barnas, they, they looked at what made the difference for these 10%. And so... Um, the, these ideas, these big ideas, they're coming from um, the book by Barna. 
Um, and I would encourage you to read that book. We're just going to be able to scratch the surface of some of what they uncovered. But we're not just going to be, they're a research company. They're a Christian company. They're a research company. But we're going to be taking some of what they found, and we're going to be looking at it through the lens of Scripture. And what we'll find is that in Scripture, these truths that they discovered through research and statistics are mirrored very well. They, they discovered five ways, five marks of a resilient disciple. Five things present in the life of these, that 10%, that have made the difference and have led them to stick around. And so that's, that's kind of going to be where we're going this morning. We can't spend a lot of time on all of them because there's five of them, and, and I wish I could dive deep into them all. But we're going to be kind of going a little bit uh, high view of some of these, and there's a few that I want to dig into a little bit deeper. Um, but the first marker that we're going to be talking about this morning is that of experiencing Jesus. They discovered that resilient disciples experience Jesus. And now before we dive into this, I want to give you guys a a tip for running. (laughs) It helps to enjoy it. Now, for years, every time I had to run, I hated it. I, I played sports where running was kind of a requirement just for the sake of conditioning. And I did everything I could to get out of those running exercises. Like, oh, my knee, I better just go hop on a bike. And usually my coaches hated me for that. And I don't know when or how or why this happened, but one day over this last year it clicked that no longer was I dreading getting out, lacing up my shoes and hitting the trails of Chaska. I actually was looking forward to it. And for whatever reason, I don't know why this happened. I still am confused by it. Maybe it just forced myself to enjoy it. I don't know. But now I'm looking forward to running, I, and, and I'm still running even though it's winter because I like, I've, I'm actually enjoying the process, and that helps a lot. And so like, if your New Year's resolution is, is running, but you hate running, it's going to be tough. I'm just going to tell you that right now, but if you like running, it just it naturally it makes sense to us. It's easier. Things that we enjoy, things that we like, it's easier for us to take part in them. And so what Barna found about those who had a resilient faith is that they took deep joy and satisfaction from their relationship with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that their faith was just full of of fun and um, enjoyment, but faith to them wasn't about duty. It wasn't about um, just checking off a box. Faith to them was a deeply personal, relational experience, and they had a real encounter with Jesus. And so... They discovered that to develop a deep faith, we need to have a real relationship with Christ. We need to have a a deep, rich relationship with Jesus and a deep experience with Jesus in order for us to develop a faith that is resilient and stands against anything that will be thrown at it. And um, there's a lot of scripture that goes into this idea that God wants a relationship, and, and it, us to have a personal experience with him. I mean, if you, if you just survey scripture, you see this theme repeated, repeatedly. Everywhere in scripture, this, this idea that God is coming to us so that we can experience and encounter him, it's, it's, it's amazing to see it. In Genesis, in the garden, God was walking with Adam and Eve. Once sin entered the picture, which, which shattered that, that relationship with God, God came down. He chose his people. He established a nation. He established his, he tabernacled among his people. Like if you look at when, 
when Israel was wandering through the wilderness and when they set up the tabernacle, it was in the middle of where all the people were. God came down and dwelt in the middle of his people so that they could experience him, even though there was that, that barrier because of sin. You continue on. He built the, they built the temple so that God could dwell in the midst of his people and people could experience him. Jesus himself, God, came down in, in human form to walk and talk and dwell among us. In the end, we are said to be gathered around, to be experiencing God. We can't have a faith that is without an experience with God. It makes sense, right? There is, there's, our faith is built upon our relationship with God. It is built on that very foundation. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that God is working to restore his relationship with us. So, if we try to have a faith that does not have that relationship in it, What's our faith built on? Um, There's a lot of scripture we could go to, but one that in particular stood out to me as I was reflecting on this finding um, was Acts chapter 17. So you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend a few minutes in this passage. Acts 17 verse 22. In this passage, um, Paul is in Athens and he's at the Areopagus, which is um, the place of worship for the, the... the Greeks, for the pagans, and they, they had set up um, altars to all of their gods, including, as you'll see in this passage, the altar to the unknown god, uh, which is kind of interesting, and, and you'll see why in just a second. So Acts 17, I'm going to start in verse 22 and read down through a little bit of this. Here's what it says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. I'm going to stop there. There is so much theology and so much packed into this that I would I'd love to spend more time in it but unfortunately as we go through this morning we're not going to be able to spend as much time in each of these passages as I I would like to Um, but I'd encourage you to study these further but as as Paul is standing in the midst of a a pagan society in the midst of their place of worship he looks around and he he says he perceives that they are very religious but the problem with their religion um, is something that he he gets to here They have all of these altars, and they're doing all of these rituals to appease the gods. And their their faith, their religion, it is built not upon a relationship. It's not built upon God coming down to them. Their, Their religion is built, I think, upon fear. It's built upon a sense that they need to kind of make sure they hit every single god that could be out there. I mean, they have an altar to an unknown god, just in case... There's one that they don't know about. Or, or you could say that they knew about 
God, but they weren't quite sure what to do, so they put an altar to an unknown God. So they had, they had this entire system built up where they <laughs> were just attempting to hit all of the possible gods out there so that they might be able to appease them. And there's a, there's a transactional sense in their religion as well, that they appease the gods in order to receive something. Like studying, studying this, this place would, would be fascinating. But what I want to focus on is that in the midst of that, Paul comes in. He says, I see you're very religious, but let me tell you what you're missing. Let me show you who God really is. God is not a God who dwells in the temples made by man. He's not a God who, just, who, who we can put in a box and say, we're going to worship you here, and we're going to go worship this other God just to make sure that he's happy with us. No, God is in control. He is the, the provider. He is the sustainer. There's no boundaries for God. And it's God's will for us that we seek and find him. And, and, and that leads to what I think is one of the more profound statements in the New Testament, is that in him we live and move and have our being. It is through our relationship with God that we are sustained. It is through our relationship with God that we have faith, that we are changed. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul uses that statement to point out to them that God is not a God that you just put in an altar and worship. God is a God that is meant to dwell among us. The Holy Spirit is meant to dwell in us. And so, experiencing Jesus is a foundational piece. I I would say this is the most important of the five markers that we'll talk about today, experiencing Jesus. We cannot have a faith unless we have an experience, an encounter, a relationship with Christ. That is the foundation of our faith. And I, I think that's obvious to us. I think that should be obvious to us. But it also leads us to the hardest challenge we have as the church. Because as we raise the next generation, we want them to experience Jesus. But, but by nature of an experience with Jesus, we cannot force it. It can't be coerced. It can't be forced. You can't manufacture this. And I think that's where in, in the last few decades that might be in various forms or another as we've tried to figure out how we can help the next generation build a relationship with Jesus. We've discovered a lot of ways that we can do it poorly. We've discovered a lot of ways to manufacture the experience. Um, and and I, I don't say this to be mean to any. This is people of the church trying their best and, and faithfully trying to reach the next generation. But I've seen, as, as someone who's grown up kind of in the midst of this, the, these statistics, I've seen the church kind of scrambling from time to time trying to reach the next generation, trying to create an experience with Jesus. You've got these overly emotional... That may be too strong, but emotional experiences that they have, and you've got um, uh, sometimes, sometimes ill-conceived altar calls trying to, to get every... I've seen an altar call where everyone in the church came forward, and I'm like, I don't think that is right. <laughs> I don't think everyone in here... Maybe, but like, we can't force this. We can't coerce it. What we can do as the church, we can teach the truth, we can create places for people to ask questions and for people to experience God. We worship together. We do all of these things together. But as soon as we start trying to force it, I think we're going to run into some problems. 
I'd love to keep talking about this, but we still have four more to go um, this morning. And these next couple I'm going to go through a little bit more quickly because I, I, really, I really wanted to focus on this first one, and then the last one as well is, is one that I really want to dwell on. But the second resilient mark is that of cultural discernment. I'm going to give you another running tip real quick. First off, if you ever Google a race of any kind, just be prepared for the next year that you are going to be seeing ads for running things like crazy. I, I don't think I've seen an ad on my social media sites, Instagram or Facebook, that is not running related for the last year. <laughs> whether it's a running app, whether it's a new race that I should be doing, or whether it's uh, running equipment that I need. There's a lot of money to be made in the running world, and and so there's a lot of voices that contribute to that. There are articles that are written, books that are written, telling you, you should be running this way. You should, be, you should be doing this. You need to lengthen your stride. You need to shorten your stride. You need to be wearing softer shoes. You need to be running barefoot. You need, <laughs> like, there's a, there are a lot of opinions out there. And it can be quite overwhelming. And you can't follow all of the opinions out there. You need to have discernment about what you listen to. And so if you ever are getting interested in running, my advice is to find just one source or two sources that you trust and try to shut out the rest because otherwise you're going to get very confusing and it's going to be difficult for you. That's just something I've discovered. And what Barna discovered is that resilient disciples are a part of a church that helps them interpret the culture around them. They are people who who said that they feel confident to address the issues of today, that they feel like they have a place where they can openly discuss issues that are coming up in culture. And I think that makes sense. Our culture is is constantly changing. I could list a lot of examples of how our culture has changed, but I think you know. The culture is is a constantly moving thing. And so each generation has this challenge of, of interpreting culture and understanding our place as Christians in the midst of it. And so if we as a church are not helping the next generations understand and interpret culture and understand that through the lens of scripture, that's where we go wrong. So we need to be encouraging the next generations in this area. This also has a lot of rooting in scripture. Um, we're not going to go to any of these passages in specific, in specific but uh, Acts 17, which we were just in earlier, uh, there's the passage regarding the Berean Jews. I, I love this passage because it's about Paul going to Berea, and as he goes, he's preaching the gospel to them, and the Berean Jews are said to be um, very, they are very discerning and astute, and they, are, they examine the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying is true. And they kind of create this, um, they create this picture of, Someone who, when they hear something, they test it first against Scripture. And that's very honorable. And, and that led them to therefore believing by testing against Scripture. So I, I love that example of, of the Berean Jews testing what is going on in their world against Scripture before they make any decision. First Peter chapter 3, um, there's the famous passage where it's told that, that we are told to be prepared to have an answer for everyone for the faith, for the hope that we have. We have to be prepared um, as, as the culture stands opposed and different to what we are doing in the church. We have to be prepared to give an answer for what it is that is going on here in our doors. First Timothy three sixteen through 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, instruction. Oh, I'm getting the mix, all mixed up. But 
for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Scripture is meant for our benefit. It is meant for us to be informed, to be instructed, for correcting us, for guiding us through the, the ever-changing time that we live in. Um, another passage I like in it that kind of sheds light on this, Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples to go and to proclaim, um, he tells them to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves because he expects that they are going to be facing persecution and opposition. And he tells them to be wise and gentle. Not to be wise and mean about it, but to be, but to be discerning and to be on the lookout because it's a, it's a changing Difficult world out there. And scripture is meant to help us through it. It's meant to help us, and it's meant to be our anchor in times of the change. And so that is, uh, that is foundational to someone um, who is going to become a resilient disciple. If they don't know how to interpret the culture, if they don't know how to understand what is going on, they're going to be blown away by all that's going on in the world. So that's our duty as the church, is to help in cultural discernment. Uh, the next one I want to talk about, the third mark, is that of meaningful relationships. Um, the number one reason that I started running this year was not necessarily just, just to run a race. It wasn't necessarily just to get in better shape. The number one reason that I ran is because of my relationship with my dad. Um, in 2018, Brittany and I had the opportunity to go and watch him for the first time run a half marathon. And after watching that, this, this desire was placed within me that I'm like, I want to do that. And my dad and I have this relationship for the last several years where he's, every time we visit, he's like, hey, you want to go for a run today? And I'm like, no, I do not. Um, but when I saw him reach that goal, something that he had been working for for quite a while. When I saw him reach that goal, that moved me, and that was my inspiration for starting running. So the, the half marathon that I ran was the one that I ran with my dad in 2019, a year later. And it was an amazing experience to be able to do that and to have that memory with him. And, and so amongst all the reasons to stop running, I knew that in the back of my mind, I was doing this because of my relationship with my dad. And now it's something that we share together. And it's, it's a really cool experience for us to have. And I don't think I would have ever gone this far if it wasn't without him there. Similarly, Barna discovered that a resilient disciple is one who, who has meaningful relationships in the church. It's someone who, when they come to church, they receive encouragement, they receive community, they receive fellowship. Turn to Hebrews 10. Uh, we're going to dwell there for just, uh, just a few minutes as we go through this one. Hebrews 10, 24. This passage is, is kind of a, it's a big, well-known passage, and it tells us about how we as the church can relate to one another. It's a challenge for us from the author of Hebrews to Build meaningful relationships. So Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
not neglecting meeting to, get, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The people of God are meant to be a family. We are meant to spend time together. We are meant to encourage one another. This is something that, that we cannot give up on. As you go down that list of, of the 18 to 29-year-olds who were raised in the church, from, from the prodigals to the resilient disciples, the, the further down that list you go, the more engaged someone is in the church. So I think this is twofold. I think on the one hand, as we think about this personally, we need to be involved in our church community. We need to be present. It's really hard to develop a deeper faith when you're not with the body of Christ. And at the same time, when we are here, we need to be reaching out to one another. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to be doing life together. That's what our life groups are for, is so that we can meet together regularly to dive into God's word, to share the highs and lows of life, to walk through difficulties together. That's what builds a resilient faith. That's why people stick around in the church. It's not because of a good sermon. It's not because of the worship. It's because of the people. And it's because the people come together to worship and to study. And so that's a challenge for us. That is, that is a huge challenge for us. And as the interesting thing about this is that if you look at 18 to 29-year-olds, and you, you see that they're leaving the church. You're like, well, where are they getting their community? They're finding it. I think that's a big reason why 18 to 29-year-olds might be leaving the church is because they're finding community outside the church. And that, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, in, an innate desire within us is to be around others, to build relationships. And so in one sense, like the rise of social media, a lot of people feel like they get their connection through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or those things that they feel like they can find a community online or maybe they're finding a community elsewhere, somewhere outside the walls of the church. But I can assure you that, that if they're not in our community, there's a community elsewhere that they're a part of because we all desire that community. We desire it deeply. And so as the church, that's our strength. And actually as, as um, being a part of Valley, this is our fourth year here at Valley. I, I just want to encourage you that the, the community of Valley it always is moving and encouraging to me to see how we come together as a church. And I'm not telling you that to say like, okay, check, we got that figured out. But I encourage you to keep leaning into that strength that we have, that community reaching out to others, leaning into life groups, into Bible studies, into Sunday school classes. That's our community together. In talking to the people that are sitting next to you here on Sundays. But we have to keep moving on. Um, marker number four. This is an interesting one I found. It's called, they found this idea from Barna, vocational discipleship. Now, I feel like this might need a little bit of definition. Um, when I talk about vocational discipleship, what I mean is that it is... I mean, all of us, in one way or another, have a, a calling in our life. A lot of you work. Some of you, maybe your calling is to home, to your family. But 
each of you have a, a calling that you have on your life. And vocational discipleship is the idea that that calling we have, we receive discipleship in it and for it. Um, so say, for instance, you're, you're in business of some kind. Vocational discipleship for you might look like having people in that business with you that you have a community of faith with. And that might be hard depending on where you work. But, but in the business world that you are a part of, you have those faith-based connections. But also, vocational discipleship means that you are receiving encouragement and training. or um, you're, you're, you're looking at your calling due to the, to the encouragement of the church. You're looking at your calling as a way to reach the world. In other words, it is looking at all of our callings as our mission field. Not saying that you have to, every day at work, you have to be making sure you share the gospel with one person, but it's realizing that God calls you to a particular place, to particular people, and that through those relationships, you can show them who Jesus is. And so resilient disciples know that, and they receive encouragement towards that from the church. It's a big, big thing. Um, Colossians 3 uh, 23 through 24, uh, this is a verse I've I actually used recently in youth group um, as we were talking about um, just this idea of our identity and our calling for life. But Colossians 3:23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. I like this verse because it, it encourages us that no matter what we do, we do it, we're not, we're not doing it for men, we're not doing it for our boss, we are doing it for the Lord. And so that means that we do it well, but that means that we also do that with a mindset of a mission focus. Um, and so I, th- I think that's important for us to realize. We need to support one another in our in, in our workplaces. Um, Your job, your calling, is a big part of your life. And I know that for a a long time, it's been commonplace to just kind of put, divide your life into boxes. I've got my church box, I've got my family box, I've got my work box. And I, I think that's good because we don't want work taking over family. We don't want work taking over church. Like, but at the same time, these are big areas of your life. And faith in particular, if we just put that over in a box and we, we don't let our faith influence how we, how we live and how we work, then we're missing out on a huge portion of, of what our faith is meant to be. It is meant to impact everything we do. So we can't divide our faith from our work, our faith from our family. There, our faith is meant to go through all of life. And so that's something that actually makes a resilient disciple is someone who understands that and is encouraged towards that as they come to church. Okay, uh, the last one I wanted to spend a little bit more time on. We'll see how much time we actually have for it. Um, The fifth mark um, is that of a countercultural mission. Um, so you can actually turn to John chapter 15 as I, as I kind of set this one up. But back to running one last time. 
one thing that has, weirdly, that has sparked me on to run more is when I tell someone that I'm running or I tell someone how far I ran and they're like, you're crazy. I love that. I don't know why, but I really enjoy people saying, you're crazy. You're insane. I would never do that. And I'm like, yes. I don't, I don't know why it is. Um, but as I've run further and further and as I've done longer and longer uh, races like half marathon, the group of people has gotten smaller and smaller that have completed that. And I actually enjoy that because, not, because I enjoy doing something that not everyone can do or, or that not everyone wants to do. I'm still undecided on whether I want to keep <laughs> doing that. But the idea that I can do something that not a lot of people want to do, it, it drives me forward. I don't know why, but I think, it's, I think it might be tied to just our human desire to want to be different. Maybe that's part of it. Um, Barna discovered that, and, and I think this is actually, this was the hardest one for me to grasp at first. They discovered that a resilient disciple is someone who understands and actually wants the church to have a counter-cultural mission. And I think that's just an interesting finding that they, they discovered. I, I, it took me a long time to grasp what they were saying, that you mean to tell me that the people that, people that are, have the deepest faith are actually the people that like or, or enjoy the fact that we have a mission as a church that is standing opposed to culture? That that's actually our strength? I think historically we have, at least in recent years, especially in the United States, we've looked at that as a weakness of the church, that the church stands opposed to culture. But in reality, it is our strength. Um, In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, I I was drawn to this passage because I I think it challenges and illuminates this a little bit. Jesus, in in this long dialogue to his disciples, says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word... They will also keep yours. This isn't exactly a common passage. Like, I was thinking about it. You don't hear this one at weddings or at baby dedications or at graduation ceremonies. Say, the world hates you. It's strong words. It's very strong words for us. And it's challenging. But Jesus isn't sugarcoating it. The calling of the church the calling of us as followers of Jesus is one that the world stands against. I don't like that idea. I'm not, I don't look forward to the idea of being hated or being persecuted or, or being called crazy. But someone that has a deep, lasting, resilient faith is someone who grasps that idea and runs with it. Who is not afraid to be countercultural, and and this calls to mind, I think, a big failure of ours as the church in the last generation, and that's the, the that we have kind of shoved passages like this under the rug, and we've tried to ignore it. And there's two ways in which we've kind of done this. Um, on the one hand, there's the 
there's the reaction to kind of sugarcoat the gospel or to hide these tougher passages or to say, well, you know, following Jesus doesn't really mean you have to change too much. That's not true. But we, but there are, and I'm not, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but there's, there's movements of the church that, that do that, that water down the gospel to make it palatable. And what you do when you do that, you, you make the, the church not countercultural. You make it so that the culture and the church can exist in unison. And that is not what we were designed for as the church. And I think that's a failure of ours if that's what we lean into. And then on the other hand, and this might, you may not like me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. Sometimes as the church, we try to change the culture to be like the church. And now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, like, when it comes to, I'm thinking specifically about the political side of this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight for what we believe is right in the political world. But I, in recent years, I've come to be at peace with the idea that the United States, if it, it is never going to be 100% Christian, the, 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 the values of the politicians and of our government will never fully line up with Scripture. And so, if we, if we shed the idea that our church is meant to be countercultural and we trade it for power and we try to force culture to be Christian, that's a losing battle. And that's, like, like I was saying earlier, you have to have a real encounter with Jesus in order to become a resilient disciple. You're not going to become a Christian because there's a law. You have to be Christian. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, but... So I think it's a, it, this, is a, this is the toughest thing for me to grasp. Our movement is meant to be counterculture. And now as, as we live in a nation with freedoms and um, those founded upon the Christian principles and, and those things, we, we kind of live in a, in a weird setting of this where there are bits of our movement that aren't countercultural, but there are bits that are. But as, as you've seen in the last decade, the church is not growing in the United States, at least as a whole, but it is dwindling. Because as the church has become less popular, the people that were nomads and prodigals and, and maybe even habitual churchgoers have been leaving the church because it is no longer advantageous to be a part of the church. But if you look at where the church is growing in the world, it is not in Christian nations for the most part. It is in nations where the gospel is forbidden. It is in nations where there is a high high risk to being associated with the name of Jesus. That is where the church is growing and growing rapidly in places like China, in Africa. The, the church is, is booming in those places. And it is because it is a countercultural movement. And so as, a, as Christians in the United States, um, maybe you look at what's going on in, in the political sphere and you think that our culture is headed to be, a, uh, maybe we're headed as a nation to a place where we soon will be persecuted. I don't think we're there yet, and I don't think that's coming as quickly as, as some might say. But if it, if it does come, if it, if it leads to the growth of the church, you might not like me for saying that, but bring it on. 
If a little, I, I, I once heard someone say that the United States church could use a little persecution. <laughs> the American church could use a little bit of persecution. Um, and now I don't want that. Don't, don't hear me saying that. I'm not, that's not something I want. But what I want is for us to remember that our movement is meant to be countercultural. So don't be discouraged when culture stands against what we're doing. In fact, be encouraged by it because that means that we're doing what we're meant to do. We are meant to be countercultural. The message of Jesus is not one that is meant to be easy to accept and digest. It is meant to be hard because it changes everything. And it is so worth it to, to be counterculture. So I wish I could spend more time on each and every one of these, but these five marks of a resilient disciple are, are just something I want you to dwell on. And, I, and it's hard to focus on all five of them, but, but I'd encourage you as we start 2020 to, to look at these and think about maybe just one of these in particular that you as an individual, as a part of the church, can focus on this year. Something that you can study more into, something that you can pour into, something that you can contribute to one another. Because we as a church, I, I don't think, um, I, sure, the statistics aren't great. But I also think that we, as the church, we can change the statistics. We can change this trend. But as a church here in Chaska, we have been entrusted with a community. We have been entrusted with a, with a mission We've been entrusted with people, with young people. And as a church, it is our, it, it is our priority that we must continue to pour into them. We must continue to fulfill our mission. And I think these are some ways that we can do it. So on that note, I'm going to invite the worship team up. And um, let's just spend some time in prayer this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that in a world that changes constantly, in a time that seems like the world as a whole is drifting further and further from you, we thank you that you are constant and you remain. You are with us always. When things get hard, you are with us. In the joys of life, you are with us. And so, as a church here in Chaska, as Valley Free, this morning we, we ask, we pray, that you would encourage and strengthen each and every one of us to do what you've called us to do, to be who you've called us to be, to be faithful, resilient disciples for your kingdom, that we would take the message of Christ to all the corners of our community, to all the corners of the world. And that as our mission, we would develop people who have a real, deep, lasting faith. It's our heart's desire, Lord, and we know that through you and you alone can we do it. So as we head into 2020, we ask and pray that you would remind us of your presence constantly. You would be at work in our midst and that we would be able to look back in a year from now and be amazed at what you've done. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.
Please stand and sing with us.